Hello everyone and welcome to this edition of After the Final Whistle. I am your host, Brad Clear. This is the part two of my NBA season preview podcast. Uh, last episode, we went over the Eastern Conference teams. I went from 1 to 15, gave a whole big preview for each of those 15 teams. Um, if you haven't listened yet, go into the list of episodes on iTunes or on podcast.com, whichever you're listening on. Today's episode, um, I'm going to go through seeds 1 to 15, my predictions for where each of the Western Conference teams will be at the season's end, um, what to look for, storylines, etc. You guys know the drill. Again, after the final whistle, I am your host, Brad Clear, and without any further ado, let's just dive right into it. So, in the shocker of the day, the first seed in the West, in my prediction, obviously, the Golden State Warriors. Um, last year, winning 62 games, or excuse me, 58 games, they're over under for the season is 62 games, uh, en route to winning the NBA championship again. Um, as I just mentioned, they're over under for the season in win totals is 62. I'm going to take the over. I think this Warriors team is going to win 66 games. I'll put them at 66 and 16 for the season because I'm factoring in, I don't think that Stephen Curry is going to miss the amount of games that he did last year. I think he'll play more games. And then you also have to factor in, I know he's not coming until January, February, whenever it is, but DeMarcus Cousins is now on this team. So in looking at this team's offseason, they lost Nick Young, they lost JaVale McGee, they lost Zaza. In replacing Nick Young, they made a very solid first-round pick towards the end of the round, picking up Jacob Evans, um, a guy who's got good size at 6'6", can shoot from the outside, can play at the 2 or the 3, basically takes whatever role Nick Young had, slide it right over to Jacob Evans. Um, the weird, I thought it was a bit weird, the situation that they had with Patrick McCaw. Um, they still have a cap hold on him for this offseason. They haven't renounced him yet, but... McCaw turned down a two-year deal uh, for four mil. Um, I really don't understand the rationale behind McCaw's decision to not re-sign. But for the Warriors, it's not going to make much of a difference at all. Um, there's been a lot of chatter recently about Kevin Durant potentially leaving this team at the end of the season, potentially going to the New York Knicks. I don't buy that at all. The only way that I can see Kevin Durant leaving this team, at least this coming offseason, is if there is a major conflict or internal uh, turmoil that arises at some point during the season. Outside of that, he's not leaving this team. What, what is there to say really about this team, right? You have five all-stars now in this starting lineup. You have... A top 15 player, probably the second, now with Davis as a center, the third best center in the NBA in DeMarcus Cousins. Um, so at the time of year where teams are signing guys who have been bought out, um, signing a bunch of 10-day contracts, the Warriors' big buyout signing per se will end up being DeMarcus Cousins because that is the time of year that he'll return. 
it's the rich get richer. And I'm not going to sit here and complain about it because, simply put, DeMarcus Cousins did not have much of a market this offseason, had an offer from Golden State, and he's going to win a ring because of it. Um, there's no chance that Klay Thompson leaves this team. He has basically stated, and it has been said, that he does not have any issue not being the man on a team and is in the perfect situation. So I don't see any way in which Kevin Durant or Klay Thompson leave this team and with Durant especially, with all this noise, I still don't see it. Um, having lost JaVale McGee and Zaza and David West retiring, um, Damian Jones going to have a more prominent role this year. Have to see him step up in that backup big role. Um, I like the signing of Jonas Jarebko at the minimum. A guy who's flexible, can play multiple positions, he's versatile. They just converted Alonzo McKinney. Um, into a non-guaranteed deal to be their 15th man. I like that move also. Still have Jordan Bell there. Uh, Quinn Cook is Quinn Cook. You know, he's going to be an inefficient bench guard scorer who's small, doesn't really contribute anything defensively. Um, but look, we know what we're getting with this team. Yes, they would they would not have made it out of the Western Conference Finals last year had Chris Paul not gotten hurt. But this year, I think they win 66 games en route to winning the title yet again. And I do not think that Kevin Durant leaves nor do I think that Klay Thompson leaves. Let's move on to the team who I had at the who I believe will be the second overall uh, seed in the West at season's end, and that is the Houston Rockets. The team who had Chris Paul not gotten hurt in the Western Conference Finals in Game Five, this team would have won the finals last year and would be the defending NBA champions. I have no doubt about that in my mind. Um, the Rockets had. Kind of, uh, I'm not. I'm not crazy about the off season that the Rockets had um, this off season. Let's go through it. So, first off, I thought they. Let's talk about the positives first. So, getting Clint Capella back uh, on the five year deal for 90 mil, especially with how long it took, I thought that Capella was going to end up just taking the qualifying offer and going into free agency or go into free agency. Uh, in 2019, as an unrestricted free agent with a lot of teams having cap space, angling to sign guys, um, getting him in there on a five-year deal, making less than 20 mil a year, I thought was great work by Daryl Morey. Um, and then Chris Paul, I thought they came to a solid compromise, um, getting one year less on the max deal for Paul. Instead of five years, they kept him for four years at four years for 160. Uh, so he gets the monster 40 mil a year on the super max or not super max on the monster max deal. Um, but Houston gets to take a year off because at that point, obviously Chris Paul is going to be a diminished player. Now let's get into the bulk of their moves from this off season. Uh, out went Trevor Ariza, Luke and Bamute, the two biggest losses, uh, from this team. Uh, Ariza, especially, um, a guy who is just a very solid, Steady presence at that three spot, the perfect three and D player for the roster and play style that the Rockets employ. Um, Luke and Bamute, I think people um, are maybe overestimating the impact of losing him. Yes, you know he was a perfect player for this team, but he did not really make any difference at all after he got hurt with the shoulder injury in the playoffs, and they did fine without him. Could they have used him? Sure, but I don't think it's a be-all, end-all to lose him. But nonetheless, you lost two guys who are defensive-minded guys who could shoot from the outside um, at that 3-4 tweener spot. 
and you replace them with Carmelo Anthony and James Ennis. So getting on to James Ennis here, I thought that people did not talk enough about this James Ennis signing. Now look, is Ennis going to be the same player as Trevor Ariza? No, he's a step down. But as a guy who, you know, he needs to take more threes than he has taken in the past, but a guy who is capable of hitting shots from three-point land, a guy who is a serviceable, solid defender, they got him on the cheap, um, based on the options that were available to them and the style of play that they had to fit, I thought Ennis was a great signing. Um, I expect him to be closing out games, playing in key situations, and in crunch time at that three spot, you know, obviously with Paul, with Harden, um, and then with Capella, and then with P.J. Tucker. Now we get to Carmelo. Now, the only options that the Rockets had in signing a second guy to play at that 3-4 tweener spot were Carmelo and Michael Beasley. And really, Beasley ended up signing for over 3 mil, so it really ended up being only Carmelo. Now, is Carmelo an efficient, productive player who is thought of as someone who fits what Houston super need or super greatly needed and a guy who could play lockdown D and hit threes at a knockdown rate? No, he's not. He's a complete traffic cone defensively. Um, his three-point shooting really isn't that great. He's a completely inefficient player at this stage of his career. However, based on the available options in terms of who is actually available in free agency and based off of um, the ability that they had to bring guys in price-wise and what they needed within their roster, Carmelo was their only option. Carmelo was the guy that they had to sign. Now, what Carmelo can provide, albeit at very isolated incidents, is Carmelo can potentially provide you being a guy who off of the bench can provide some sort of scoring punch in that 3-4 tweener role. Now, he's going to stop the ball a lot. He's not going to push the pace at all. He's not going to be a guy who, if he's wide open from three, you're sure that he's going to knock it down eight times out of ten. But there are times where Carmelo will have flashes of the player he once was and will be able to provide you scoring in bunches. And again, based on the options available, what they were able to sign guys for, they really they gave him the minimum here. Carmelo was the best signing they could have made. Now, is he going to be playing in key situations? Probably not, because how can you put him on the court in a pivotal situ in a pivotal situation in a game in the playoffs, end of the season, whatever it is, and have the confidence for Carmelo to play defense and stop whoever he is guarding? Teams will attack whoever Carmelo is guarding and will plan it and scheme such that Carmelo ends up on other teams' best offensive players. Carmelo will get eaten alive on the defensive end. It's going to be pretty much unplayable in the playoffs late in the game against a team like Golden State. But, again, based off of the options that were available, Carmelo was the best option. Now, let's get into a move that you know I really did not like here from Daryl Morey and the Rockets, and that was the trade where they traded uh, Ryan Anderson and DeAnthony Melton to Phoenix for Brandon Knight and Marquise Chris. Now, I understand that Anderson, terrible contract, can hit threes, but as we saw in that series against Golden State, when he gets out there and is on the defensive end, he gets absolutely cooked. 
DeAnthony Melton, who they picked in the uh, second round at 46 overall, I thought was arguably the best value pick of the entire draft. A guy who has first-round talent, should have been a first-round pick, um, was in consideration by multiple teams for their picks towards the end of the first round. A guy who is a stout defender, a guy who is going to grow into his shot, and I think has the ability to eventually be a starting point guard in the NBA. And if not, he fit Houston perfectly as a guy who, in limited minutes, could come off of the bench and play solid defense for them. And, by virtue of being picked 46th overall, you'd be having a serviceable player for many years at a very, very low rate. And then they turned it into Brandon Knight and Marquise Chris. Looking at Brandon Knight, Brandon Knight makes 14.6 mil this year and 15.6 mil next year. Really only a difference of around 5 or 6 million a year from what Ryan Anderson is making. And on top of that, Brandon Knight has not played meaningful minutes in like two years. And he has had consistent knee problems over the uh, over the last few years in the recent time period. Since Houston traded for him, he was experiencing knee problems after being acquired. So, yes, Ryan Anderson's contract was terrible, but they got off of that contract and took away his three-point shooting and got in a guy who really doesn't make that much of a difference um, in just pure what they make per year counting against the cap in Brandon Knight. Um, and Brandon Knight is not capable of playing minutes off of the bench in a significant amount or in pivotal situations because one, he's too injury prone, and two, he has not shown in multiple years that he is capable of playing consistent heavy minutes or important minutes at that. And then we get to Marquise Chris, who, I'll say it, I was a huge fan of his coming into the draft uh, when he was drafted by Phoenix when they traded up with Sacramento and got him 8th overall after they picked Bender early on. Earlier on, I thought Chris was a guy who was athletic, was going to be able to be a, a guy who could guard 5s and 4s and would grow into an offensive game and be a super lob threat, um, would be a plus defender, an above-the-rim presence, and would be a decent offensive guy. You know, would have been a real solid player. He's a bust. Point blank at this point, Marquise Chris is a bust. And all you can hope for with Chris is that he is able to catch lobs and rebound. Because he's not a four, and he can't guard fives, and he has no offensive game. So you got to hope for him to be super athletic and a real lob threat above the rim and to be a consistent rebounder. Uh, as far as him playing, you know, obviously Capella's your guy at the five is going to play significant minutes every game. I don't want to play Marquise Chris over Nene. You know, if that's what they do, I guess they try to replicate um, replicate Capella's play in Chris, but really, I don't see that being possible. I don't think Chris is a solid defender. I don't think he adds anything offensively. If he can't catch lobs or rebound at a high rate, he offers you nothing. So, they turned Melton, a guy who would have been a serviceable backup for years at a cheap rate, and Ryan Anderson, who if nothing else could just come off the bench and um, provide that three-point punch in short spurts and turned it into a guy who really should not be playing over the other backup center and only offers you, at best, two serviceable traits and a guy who really isn't going to play much for you 
has knee problems, hasn't been serviceable in years, and isn't much of a salary difference from Anderson. So the whole idea of getting off of Anderson's contract kind of went away because you got in another bad contract, albeit, you know, five million or less. And you could argue that that bad contract that they got in is less serviceable than the bad contract they sent out. Now, I have no idea if teams were receptive, you know, like Atlanta or like Charlotte, to the idea of trading Batum or uh, Kent Bazemore for Anderson in a draft pick. You know, I have no idea if that was a possibility. But who's to say that possibility could not have existed in the future? I don't know. I did not like this trade at all. I thought for Phoenix it was a great trade. Um, Michael Carter-Williams is a big body. That's it. He is a bad NBA player in every other sense. Um, overall, we look at Houston for the season. Uh, 57 wins is their over-under. Last year, they won 65. I'm going to take the over just barely. I'm going to say they won 58 games as the second-best team in the Western Conference, making them, based off of my Eastern Conference predictions, the fourth-best team overall in the NBA this regular season. I just think they had a poor offseason. Um, I thought, I think that they're really not going to be able to replicate their 65-win season last year. Um, you have to account for Chris Paul missing games, maybe more than last year, just based on age and wear and tear. Um, I'll go 58 games. They're still going to make it to the conference finals against Golden State, but I can't see a way this year that they beat them. Let's move on to the team who I have as the three seed in the Western Conference, and that would be the Utah Jazz. The Utah Jazz are a really, really fun team who you got to get behind and you enjoy watching them play, and you kind of root for them from afar. Um, last year, came in as the five seed in the West, winning 48 games, uh, the same amount as Oklahoma City and New Orleans, one less than Portland. Um, Quinn Snyder, um, their coach, to me, one of the best coaches in the entire NBA at this point, um, and they are one of the league's best defensive teams. They are deep. They are versatile, they are flexible, they have a young, cheap star to head it all, they have the best interior defender and arguably the best defender in the league in the middle in Rudy Gobert, um, and they're going to have a lot of cap space coming out of this season, but that's getting ahead of ourselves. Um, I look at the Utah Jazz and I see a team that every single game that you play against them, they are going to defend the crap out of you, they're going to play you hard, and they're going to give it their all every single game and play with their heart on their sleeves. Um, Quinn Snyder devises these schemes on the defensive side of the ball and has instilled a culture within this team that makes them, in my mind, the sixth best team in the league and a team that is kind of like a rising powerhouse. You look at how good of a team they have now, you have the cap space that's coming after this season, Things are on the up for Utah, and they already are one of the league's best teams. Um, look, Donovan Mitchell is an absolute stud. He had a fantastic rookie season, not better than Ben Simmons, but is going to only get better. And having lost Gordon Hayward, getting in Donovan Mitchell at the 13th pick in the first round, and having that star there for you, huge. Um, Joe Ingles. Joe Ingles is awesome. I love, first off, how his contract got structured in that 
Um, he's making 13 mil this year, bumps down to 11.9 next year, and then 10.8 the year after that in a descending order. Um, but Ingles is a guy who can shoot from the outside, plays good defense, he's flexible, he's versatile, he can play at the three, he can play at the four, defend at a high level, shoot threes and knock him down at a high level, um, can rebound as well. He really stuffs the stat sheet and contributes all across the board. Jay Crowder, you have at that super value contract, making only seven mil a year. Shoots threes from the outside, plays defense, athletic and versatile at that tweener spot as well. Um, Dante Exum. I have stand for Dante Exum uh, for some time now. Just got re-signed uh, to a three-year deal um, this offseason. And he's a guy who's a big-bodied guy. He's really athletic. And putting the injuries behind him moving forward, I think, is a perfect prototype for this team as a backup point guard who can be a nuisance for every other team on the defensive side of the ball um, and is growing into that offensive game. Um, and you look at the rest of this team, just value guys on this team. Tabo Cephalosha at 5 mil. Ekpe Udo. I am a huge fan of Ekpe Udo uh, as a backup big, making around 3 mil. Raul Neto I'm a huge fan of as the, at, um, at the backup spot, at the point guard spot, like as your number 3 guy. Grayson Allen. Look, for all the crap about Grayson Allen being, you know, very much dislikable, the guy is going to have an easily translatable skill of being a plus three-point shooter. He's going to be able to come off the bench for this team and to provide a spark shooting from deep. Alec Burks, uh, in the last year of his deal, making 11.5 mil, another guy who I stand for, he keeps all of his injury issues behind him. He is a productive bench player as well and then there is the guy who I really wanted to get into in this preview and that's Ricky Rubio who on this Utah Jazz team last year had the best season of his career and had a truly resurgent year he the big knock on Rubio for years had been you know he can't shoot from the outside his inability to shoot from three-point range you know made defenders sag off of him so his great passing ability you know, and his ability to work wonders in a pick and roll maybe were lessened and all that. He got his three-point um, percentage last year. He shot 35% from three. He had his highest percentage shooting from the field last year, shot about 42%. Um, his scoring numbers, points per game, the highest in his whole career at 13 a game. His assist numbers went down as a whole, but he produced at such a high level. And that three-point shot, the threat at least of him being able to shoot from beyond the arc, opened up so much for him, and as a result, the team offensively. Uh, opponents had to respect that three-point shot. Work wonders in the pick and roll. Throw more lobs. Be in position to throw better passes. All of that contributed to just how good of a team Utah was last year. And to me, I don't think that that was a one-time isolated incident. I think it's a sign of what is going to come and that Rubio, this is the type of player he is now. Now, after the season with his contract up, Utah having a lot of space, we'll see what happens. They got to keep him. This is a guy who transformed his game last year. As a whole, spearheaded alongside Donovan Mitchell, the resurgence of the Utah Jazz, and is the perfect lead ball handling guard for this team. We get into Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell, who I really have not talked much about in this preview, but... Donovan Mitchell, stud who's only going to get better and is going to be among the league's best and an all-star caliber player in years to come. And then Rudy Gobert, 
is just dynamite on the interior. Now, we saw um, with them playing Golden State, you know, that if you take him out of the perimeter or out of the interior onto the perimeter, he can struggle and can be sort of, um, you know, on an island defensively. But the guy is just such a consistently dominant interior defender, protector of the rim, that um, combined with the other good defenders on this team and Gobert's presence in the paint making everyone better adds to the fact that the Utah Jazz are one of the league's best defensive teams. I expect last year to be an indication of what is to come. I expect them to be better than they were last year. Um, As I mentioned last year, they won 48 games. Their over-under for this year right now is 50. I'm going to take the over. I think they're going to win 51 games, uh, so it's a slight on the over. But I think the third seed in the West is there for the Utah Jazz. And with that 51 win uh, win total, that would put them, in my mind, based off of my predictions with the East, as the sixth best team in the NBA at the end of the regular season. Let's move on to the team who I have as the fourth seed in the West in my predictions, and that is the Oklahoma City Thunder. Now, the injury issues or question marks with Russell Westbrook coming off of surgery and now the injury with Andre Roberson. So you're going to be having Roberson out for time and missing time to start the year. You're going to have Russell Westbrook. We really don't know if he's going to be back uh, to start the year. And we really don't know um, if he is out, how many games would he potentially miss into the season? Uh, Roberson is going to be out for six to eight weeks. So that is a significant, significant loss for them on the perimeter as that stout go-to perimeter defender for them to defend the other team's best perimeter player. We have to mention Paul George re-signing there. I thought it was great for them and great for the league that George stayed there and enjoyed his time so much. Uh, The Dennis Schroeder trade. I had mentioned this from Atlanta's standpoint uh, in the Eastern Conference podcast, but looking at Schroeder, 15.5 mil, an exorbitant amount for a guy of his caliber. However, they saved money combining on payroll and luxury tax. They turned a guy in Carmelo who they really just had to get rid of and got a guy back in Schroeder who, if he accepts his role, if he keeps on an even keel, if he produces at the level he has before, they basically have a new version of what Reggie Jackson used to be to this team. A basically, arguably, the league's best backup point guard backing up one of the league's top six players in Russell Westbrook. Now with Westbrook potentially out to start the year, whether it's a couple games or it's prolonged, getting Schroeder looks even better. Um, Jeremy Grant. The thing with Oklahoma City and with Sam Presti in uh, building this team, he always gets the guys who are super-duper athletic. He likes the big athlete types. Uh, We saw that in the second round with him getting Hamadou Diallo. But Jeremy Grant, truly a guy who you can have guard four positions on the court. You can play him at the five. You can play him at the four. Uh, His three-point shooting went up and improved last year, so that makes him more viable to play on the wing. They re-signed him this year using the middle-level exception. I'm a huge fan of Jeremy Grant's, and he is perfect for this team. With Roberson out, the guy who's going to have to step up at that two spot is Abrinas. Uh, He's not going to be able at all to match what Roberson can give you on the defensive side of the ball. But 
If he can consistently be an offensive factor, that can at least compensate for the lost defense by adding an increased offensive impact from that position because Roberson is not the best offensive player. And by virtue of Rob Roberson being out, you know, the sort of throw-in that they got in that three-team trade with the Sixers, Hawks, and them with Carmelo and Schroeder, Timothy Luau, uh Cabarro, who had an awful, awful season for the Sixers last year, you know, he had a decent season the year before that, in theory should be a good three and D wing. He'll get opportunity at least. You know, is he a productive player? I have no idea. If last year is any indication, he's not. But it's a guy there. Terrence Ferguson. I loved Terrence Ferguson as a rookie last year. We talk about guys who are going to get opportunity at that two spot with Roberson out. That is your guy right there. I'd actually be pretty excited to see uh, Schroeder and Ferguson playing together for prolonged periods of time. I feel like that could be pretty productive. Um, I thought they made a great signing with Nerlens Noel. I had thought, you know, I thought it would have been kind of cool if they had gone all in on being super deep with Biggs and also had taken uh, Mike Mascala in with that three-team trade. Obviously, Mascala went to the Sixers. But Nerlens Noel, to me, and they got him for 1.7 mil for the year. Nerlens Noel is a guy who is going to give you an above average to elite impact protecting the rim and defending. And Steven Adams is going to play a significant amount of minutes every game. But if you're playing Nerlens Noel at that five spot for like 15 minutes a game, sure, offensively, he offers you nothing. He's never been able to consistently develop an offensive game, doesn't have the greatest hands, but is a plus defender. So you're never going to have an absence of good interior defense between Adams and Noel. And I think it's good for Noel to be in a structured sort of set role with a very um, defined system in place. You know, he had the opportunity to go to Washington in a much greater role. But I think it's more conducive for him, I guess, environment-wise and system-wise in Oklahoma City. Uh, Overall, with this Oklahoma City team, last year they won 48 games, came in as the four seed in the West. I think they're going to be the four seed in the West again. This year, their over-under for win totals is 48.5. Now, before the Westbrook and Roberson stuff, I would have easily said that this is a 50 51 win team. I am going to take, I will slightly, slightly take the over. I say that they'll win 49 games this year, um, up one win from last year's total. I like this Oklahoma City team a lot. I don't have confidence in them necessarily to be a successful playoff team. You know, based off of my next prediction, I think the Lakers will be the five seed in the West. I don't really know if I have the confidence in Oklahoma City to win a playoff series against the Lakers with LeBron. But as a regular season team, I think they're going to succeed to a wild level. 49 wins, I think, will be their win total for the year. Um, thus putting them as the eighth best team in the league based off of my predictions. Behind Indiana, who I think will win 50 games. Now let's go to the team who I think will be the five seed in the West and the team who is going to be the most intriguing, most talked about, and most interesting team in the entire NBA this year, and that is the one and only Los Angeles Lakers. Uh, all right, so I'm going to avoid talking about LeBron at first and just get into 
they're you know, all right. So let's look at their offseason as a whole. Obviously, we have LeBron James coming in. Let's look at the rest of the signings made. I think this team did a not great job at building out this roster after signing LeBron. I thought Beasley was a great signing, a guy who can be a scoring type, uh, provide versatility for them, which I'll get into later with lineup combinations. Um, renouncing Julius Randle and then signing Rajon Rondo. Um, you know, at first I wasn't crazy about the Rondo signing, but now that I think about it, I'm okay with it. I think that sort of leading, um, you know, take no prisoners mentality at that bat should be backup point guard spot will be a starter to at least start the year. I think I'm okay with it. Uh, JaVale McGee, you know, looking at a, just a strictly defensive rim protecting center based off of the price they got him at and who is available. I don't think there are many, if any, better options. The real fault that I find in how they built out this roster uh, this offseason with the signings they made was Lance Stevenson. Because what this team lacks, to an extreme extent, is outside shooting. And they had the opportunity to sign Wayne Ellington for a comparable price to play in that two-guard spot. Could have been a sniper from deep. Stevenson, you know... I understand. He plays hard. He's a guy who's going to get in the head of whoever he's guarding and be a pest for the other team. But he's a negative offensively. There's going to be a moment, you know, where he has the ball in his hands and he's going to ISO and wave off LeBron. You know it's going to happen. All he brings you is the mental aspect and the toughness. He brings you intangible benefits, not tangible benefits. And I think that that money would have been much better off being used on a guy like Wayne Ellington. Um... Now, looking at the roster that they have, I think Brandon Ingram is going to have a monster season. This is a guy who, last year, he showed flashes of being every bit the mini-me Kevin Durant that people make him out to be, hype him up to be. Um, LeBron being on this team, and you can see what I'm about to talk about, you could have seen it in their preseason games, LeBron's presence... You know, LeBron being the best player in the league and arguably the best player of all time, having such a high basketball IQ, he's going to allow Brandon Ingram, based off of defenders um, obviously gravitating towards LeBron, LeBron's incredible passing ability, Ingram is going to be in a position to succeed based off of he will get great looks, he'll be able to operate more efficiently, and he'll have really very little pressure on him in compare. Well, I'll take that back. He has pressure on him because of him being on the same team as LeBron, but as far as being the primary guy to provide offense for this team, he doesn't have that pressure. He's going to get great looks. LeBron's going to set him up in great situations with his great basketball IQ and passing ability. Ingram is going to score at an incredible rate. He's going to be open more often than not. He's going to get good matchups. He's not ever going to be the guy who defenders game plan for because they're going to game plan for LeBron. I think Kyle Kuzma will also benefit from LeBron being there. Obviously not to the incredible extent I expect Ingram to benefit from it, but Kuzma, again, will be able to thrive offensively based off of the fact that defenders, they'll make use, they'll make, they'll keep him in mind, but he is not going to be a focal point like he was for this team last year, where Ingram and Kuzma were the top two offensive producers for this team. Uh... I think what's going to be really interesting with this team is I think they're going to be able to have, and this is for Luke Walton as their coach, I think Luke Walton is going to be able to employ so many different lineup combinations and five-man groups with this team. They're going to be really versatile and really flexible one through five. They really, 
if you think about it, never have to play a true five or a true five, uh, true one at once. You could throw a lineup out there with LeBron, Josh Hart, Brandon Ingram, Michael Beasley, and Kyle Kuzma, who outside of Josh Hart, who you'd stick on um, at the two or whatever, four guys who can switch all around. LeBron can be your pseudo five, and you could put the ball in Hart's hands. You could have LeBron be the one and make Kuzma the pseudo five. Um, and then it's a really hard team for defenders to match up with. You could throw a lineup out there where you put Svi out there and you put LeBron at the five and you put Lonzo as the ball handler and distributor at the one and you have LeBron, Ingram, Beasley, or excuse me, LeBron, Ingram, Svi, Caldwell Pope, or Josh Hart, and Lonzo. Again, you have scores all around and you have an elite or borderline elite level uh, distributor and playmaker in Lonzo to feed everyone else. And in Svi, you'd have a sniper from three. The point is here is you have a ton of guys who are 6'8", 6'7", 6'6", or taller, and they're long, and they're athletic, and they can guard multiple positions so that it's going to make the Lakers a hard team for defenders to match up with. And for the Lakers, it's going to make them a very switchable team when they're on defense. And offensively, it's going to open up a lot for lots of players on this team. With that aforementioned lineup with Kuzma, uh, Beasley, Ingram, Hart, and LeBron, you know, Hart obviously being the smallest guy out there at 6'5", every other guy is 6'8 or taller and is super athletic and is super versatile. Even with Lonzo, he has no ability to shoot from the outside, but that elite playmaking ability, he can rebound for a guard, he can play defense, he's 6'6". So this team is going to be huge. This team is always going to have length, they're going to have height, and they're going to be built to be a team that is hard to game plan for, hard to cover, based off of the vast amount of lineup combinations they could throw at you. The only guy who, if you look at who's going to play significant minutes on this team, who is smaller than six foot five, is Rondo at 6'1". Everyone else is, in Catavius Caldwell-Pope and Josh Hart, are your smallest guys at 6'5". Um, looking at JaVale McGee, I talked about how he was the best signing they could have made uh, based off what they needed and the price and who was available. But, you know, it could potentially arise that JaVale McGee is relied upon to play 25 to 32 minutes a game. And the production and the uh, productivity we've seen from McGee in the past when it has surfaced has largely come in short spurts. JaVale McGee has not historically been a productive player playing such significant minutes every single game. And outside of McGee, you know, Moritz Wagner, who they picked in the first round, he's a completely offensive-minded player. I thought at the time that maybe they should have taken Mitchell Robinson, who, even though he would have been raw, at least can provide you something defensively. Um, Avika Zubak Seven foot one, a guy who I liked in the pre-draft process when he was picked in the second round a couple years ago. I don't see him getting really much opportunity as far as consistent, significant minutes on this team. The only five who is going to play a big amount of minutes on this team is JaVale McGee. And we know JaVale McGee is JaVale McGee. And he's going to have his moments of being JaVale McGee. But in his productive times... Those come when he plays for five minutes and then goes to the bench. Or plays for 10 minutes and then goes to the bench. 25 to 32 minutes a game is a lot to ask for from JaVale McGee. 
And then you have to factor in the whole meme team aspect of this team. The characters, the personalities. It's going to clash at some point. There's going to be a big issue at some point. And then you factor in if LeVar Ball opens his mouth and starts talking about Lonzo potentially being in a reduced role. There is a huge possibility of fireworks and turmoil with this team based off of the characters, personalities, and overall meme aspect of this team that exists. This truly is the meme team. Now let's look at their over-under for the season, 47.5. I'm not even going to get into their win total from last year because it's irrelevant because it's a completely different team. I'm going to say that they go on the over on that 47.5 over-under. I'll give them 48 wins from the year or for the year. Um, going 48 and 34. I think that a realistically attainable goal for them and what could be classified as a successful season for this team is winning a first round playoff series. You have to set realistic and attainable goals and expectations. The idea that this team has to make the conference finals because they have LeBron, that's not realistic. This team wins a playoff series, they're playing Golden State in the second round, and they're getting destroyed. JaVale McGee's going to stop DeMarcus Cousins. The incredible rest of that team is not going to produce at an elite level like they always do. There's no chance this team makes it past, if they're the five seed, which I expect them to be, there's no chance they can make it past the second round. So they have to go in with the realistic expectation or goal of winning a first round playoff series against a team like Oklahoma City, getting a big year out of Brandon Ingram, gelling everyone with LeBron and getting production out of your role players and making everything coalesce and fit together. I'll say they win 48 games and it should be nothing short of an incredibly entertaining um, and interesting and incredibly fun to watch season for the Los Angeles Lakers. And then after that, we got to factor in their coming off season where they're going to look for that second star to pair with LeBron. And this is a quick aside. I'll get into my sixth seed in a second. I don't think that the attractiveness of being LeBron's second star is really that great. You know, we've seen it with Kawhi being tied to the Clippers, not the Lakers. Jimmy Butler being interested in the Clippers, Nets, and Knicks. I think a lot of guys, having seen what happened with Kevin Love, where you have all the pressure in the world on you, and when things go wrong, you're the scapegoat. I don't think guys are going to be super excited or chomping at the bit to want to be LeBron's second star. I think a lot of guys, you know, everyone talked about the Lakers and Kawhi, I think Kawhi would rather be his own guy and have the Clippers be his team rather than be the second guy to LeBron. Um, I personally think that their second start they sign this coming off season, I guess this is a bonus prediction, will end up being Kemba Walker or DeMarcus Cousins. Now let's move on to the team who I think will be the sixth seed in the West this coming season. And I originally had it as the San Antonio Spurs, but based off of the injuries and overall depletion of their point guard spot, I have the New Orleans Pelicans as the sixth seed in the West. Um, now, a lot of people will tell you that the Denver Nuggets should be in this spot. I really, really think that this Pelicans team, with Anthony Davis consistently playing at the five, with Nikola Mirotic and Julius Randle signed to be his um, front court mates at the four, you're always going to be having a deficiency at the wing with this team. But if Drew Holiday can play at the all-NBA level that he played at 
in two different spots as a combo guard last year, scoring, rebounding, passing, and defending. And if Alfred Payton can just be a copy of what Rondo was last year, this team is the sixth seed in the West. Uh, last year, they went 48-34, and 34, the same record as Utah and Oklahoma City. I'm going to say that they um, win 47 games this year. Uh, and their over-under for the season is 45.5, so I'm taking the over on that. I think Anthony Davis, all along, should have been playing the 5. This guy is not a 4, he is a 5. Now, I like the pairing with him and DeMarcus Cousins, so that's an exception. But once Cousins got hurt, you know they had a Mecca Okafor in there playing at the 5, and Davis playing at the 4. Davis at the 5. Anthony Davis, in my mind, is the 4th best player in the NBA, and... In a bonus prediction here, I think Anthony Davis is going to win the MVP award this year because a guy who is so dominant all across the board offensively, defensively, crashing the boards, and now he's in an optimal, or optimal, in an optimal situation positionally, and his front court mates at the four perfectly accentuate him. Nikola Mirotic had a great season last year, and as a stretch four next to a dominant do-it-all big like Anthony Davis, that is a perfect combination. We saw how successful that combination was in the first round when they absolutely destroyed the Portland Trailblazers. If you want to have just dynamite offense from your front court, and you have Anthony Davis and a stretch four in Miritich, who played at a high level last year, if he can replicate that, that front court scoring duo is going to be dynamite. And then, if you don't want to put Miritich in, you could put in Julius Randle, uh, who they have on a... It's a player option for the second year, so it's really a one-year deal at 8.6 with a 9 mil option for next year. You could put Randle in next to Davis. Randle, the um, grinding, uh, physical, rebounding, um, just plays hard, gets to the rim type of guy. You have two different types of players. A guy who can stretch the floor and provide offense, and a guy who can bring toughness, bring defense, bring a physicality to that front court alongside Davis. Both guys fit with Davis, and both guys provide you something different in terms of skill set. I love that combination, whether it's Davis and Miritich, or if it's Davis and Randall. Now at the wings, you know, Solomon Hill, Etwan Moore, obviously... That being the two best options you have in the wing, it's not ideal. Um, and they've compensated for it by playing Drew Holiday at the two. He thrived last year. Played uh, spurts at the one and the two. Largely played the two with Rondo at the one. Drew Holiday had the best season of his career outside of that all-star campaign he had in the 2012-2013 uh, season with the Sixers. He played, in my mind, if the NBA was not as deep at the guard position as it is, Drew Holiday was an all-NBA caliber player. Let's just get into his stats from last year. Look at how productive of a player Drew Holiday was. Um, last year, he had a player efficiency rating of 17.8, above average for a league standard, 19 points a game, 4.5 rebounds per game, 6 assists per game, shot 15. 49% from the field, basically almost 50. Um, 33% from three, not great, um, but 
I look at this guy and the production he had on both the offensive side of the ball, playing at two different positions with the ball in his hands, playing off ball, being able to score getting to the rim, being able to score on pull-ups and catch and shoots, being able to rebound well for a guard, being a distributor, and then playing great defense as well. This guy became the ultimate all-around combo guard last year and was one of the most productive guards in the league. And if he can play at that level again this year, and if Alfred Payton, who has his deficiencies, obviously he cannot shoot, but he's bigger than Rondo, and he's the same type of distributor at first and can play hard on defense guy, if Payton can replicate what Rondo gave last year and Holiday can play at a similar level and Randall and Miritich mesh with Davis as well as I think they will, this team is going to be a tough out for the Utah Jazz in the first round of the playoffs. Any time, if Anthony Davis, who we saw how unbelievable he was in that second half, in that stretch of the season, towards the um, end of the season, once Cousins got hurt, if he can play at that level consistently this year, which I fully expect him to, as I said, I fully expect him to be MVP, this team is going to be a nightmare for opponents. I am really interested to see this team match up with the Golden State Warriors. I think that would just be a really, really fun matchup between those two teams. But again, I think that they go over on the 45 and a half win total. I think that they win 47 games and I think they come in as the sixth seed in the Western Conference. I'm very much looking forward to seeing what the New Orleans Pelicans can bring to the court this year. Let's move on to the team who I have as the seventh seed in the Western Conference this year, and that is the Denver Nuggets. Um... Simply put, Nikola Jokic is a star. He is, without question, one of the league's top 20 players. I'd put him around 15, 16, or 17, somewhere in that range. Uh, Once he took on and realized his existence as really being a superstar who has to be, you know, just do it all by him, not do it all by himself, but once he really, you know, was accepting of the role of being just the dominant superstar last year, we saw how successful this Denver team is offensively. Um, you had Paul Millsap hurt last year. Um, you have Nikola Jokic, who is an unbelievable elite passer, a dominant interior player. Yes, he have his, he has his defensive deficiencies, but he's a superstar in every sense of the word. I think what you look at when you see this Denver Nuggets team is, this is a team who is one of the best offensive teams in the entire league, without question. One of the league's top six teams offensively. They are a poor defensive team. Just look at their starting five group. Jokic, Millsap, Barton, Harris, and Murray. Barton at the three is not an optimal situation. You'd rather have him being uh, play more at the two and then can slide to the three at times. Um, but with getting under the luxury tax and trading Wilson Chandler and then committing to re-sign Barton um, at such a high rate, Barton is locked in there at the three. And, you know, he's not necessarily, he's really like, he's 6'6", he's small for a three, he's not going to be good defensively at that spot. Jamal Murray is not that great of a defender, and Nicole Jokic, as we know, has obvious defensive uh, deficiencies. So, it's a matter of how good that offense can be, compensating for that defensive deficiency that is prevalent through this whole team. 
Uh, I like that they took a shot on Michael Porter Jr. in the draft because at that spot, with the team they currently have in place, I think that it was the right move, and I would have done the same thing. You take a shot on big upside. With that being said, he's probably going to redshirt this whole year, and you're not really going to get any... Well, not really. You're definitely not going to get anything out of him this year. Uh, Juan Hernan Gomez, productive in the preseason. Um, Malik Beasley was really productive in the preseason. I liked them getting Jared Vanderbilt in the draft. Um, He's a guy who I think is very much built for the modern NBA. Good size versatility can play uh can play at the three uh hopefully he gets the opportunity to do so i look at this team they won um 46 games last year their over under for the season is 47 and a half i think they're going to win the exact same amount of games as they won last year i think they're going to win 46 games on the season coming in as the seventh seed in the west one win behind the new orleans pelicans i think Jamal Murray is someone who you look at as someone who is primed to take a leap this season. And I'm also interested to see, you know, um, assuming that he gets healthy, can Isaiah Thomas be a really impactful, you know, high-scoring offensive, I guess, um, spurt off of the bench for them behind Murray. But Murray screams as a breakout candidate. I'm an enormous fan of Gary Harris. There's a lot to like with this Denver team. Uh, you have ownership who is completely averse to paying the luxury tax. So because of that, you lost depth in Wilson Chandler, who I think uh, would have been an incredibly useful player for them as a versatile guy who could have really been a true three, which this team doesn't really have a productive true three on this team anymore. Could play multiple positions, shoot, provide offense, provide some defense, which this team needs. Freed, you know had fallen out of the rotation anyway. Arthur can at least be a somewhat uh, useful stretch for tight. But losing that first-round pick, losing Chandler at the cost of the luxury tax, I thought looks bad on ownership because those two pieces would have been incredibly, incredibly useful to have both for now and the future. But again, one of the league's best offensive teams, not a good defensive team. We'll see how their bench guys are able to produce. We'll see if Jamal Murray can take the leap, and we'll see just how good Nikola Jokic can continue to be um, this season. Overall, I think that they hit um, the same amount of wins as last year, 46 wins, thus taking the under on their over-under of 47.5 wins. Now let's move on to the team who I think will be the 8th seed in the West, and who up until a couple days ago I thought would be the 6th seed in the West, and that's the San Antonio Spurs, who have been unbelievably unlucky with injury luck at their point guard spot. Deontay Murray, a guy who uh, was looked at, at least in my mind and in the mind of others, in the minds of others, as being a guy who was primed to take a leap, a guy who is the ultimate Spurs player, a great plus defender at the one, can't shoot from the outside, but was just having a great, had a good year last year, was primed to take a leap again this year, the perfect backcourt mate, or an ideal backcourt mate to DeRozan, a guy who's more defensive-minded. And with that touring ACL, he's probably out for the season. And then, once that happened, you said, all right, Derek White, he's a guy who everyone's been looking at as someone who could take a step up this year. And now Derek White has a plantar fasciitis issue in his foot, and he's out indefinitely. And then, Lonnie Walker, who they got a steal at, picking him 18th in the first round this past year, has a, has a knee issue, and he's out for six to eight weeks. 
so this team is severely depleted. Their only point guard options now are Patty Mills, who is built to be a guy who comes off the bench at the 1 and provides offense, and Bryn Forbes. That's it. I initially had the idea thinking this team last year made the playoffs um, and won 47 games, and they intook DeMar DeRozan and Jakob Pertl and only lost Danny Green because Kawhi really, outside of a couple games, didn't play at all. I am a huge fan of DeRozan. I know he is a completely offensive player, doesn't really provide much defensively, and he's not the most playable guy in the playoffs at times. He got benched at, uh, at points last year in the series against Cleveland. We saw that. But I think he's going to thrive here with Popovich. I'm very intrigued to see how the combination of he and LaMarcus Aldridge works. Um, very interested to see as well if LaMarcus Aldridge can produce at the level that he played at last year. Uh, I don't know if it's going to be realistic to expect him to produce at that all-NBA second-team level that he played at last year. Um, but looking at the rest of this team, they signed Marco Bellinelli, who can provide outside shooting off the bench. Jakob Pertl, I think, is going to provide a, or is going to have a role on this team. I loved him on Toronto last year and that awesome young best bench in the NBA. I think he has more upside and will eventually be the starting center for this team. I could even even see him getting some starting time this year. Um, overall, though, looking at their over-under, right now it is at 43.5. Last year they won 47 games. Taking in the fact that Murray's probably going to be out for the whole year, that Aldridge probably is not going to be able to produce at the level he did last year. I will say that they win. Uh, I'll go with 40. You know, I'll go 44 wins for the San Antonio Spurs team just on the over um, from their 43 and a half over under. I think DeRozan is going to have a monster season. He'll be an all star and he'll make one of the three all NBA teams. I think Pop is going to. I think people are sort of. You know, said that, oh, he may not be the best fit for Pop or whatever and this and that. DeRozan is awesome. And I think a lot of guys or a lot of people who like to discount him as a discount Kobe and that he may not be the most playable player in the playoffs, yes. But he is one of the most productive offensive players in the entire league. I'll say 44 wins for the Spurs team. Um, and I think they're really, really going to be impacted greatly in a negative way by the losses of Murray, and at least to start the year, Derek White. Because Murray was primed to take a leap and be a significant factor on this team as he was last year. White was primed to be a breakout candidate. And Lonnie Walker also, you know, who knows how many minutes they're planning on giving him, but I thought he was a guy who could have easily gone in the lottery can provide instant offense off the bench. So I'll go with 44 wins and the 8 seed for the San Antonio Spurs. Now, with the West being so tight, there come the teams who just miss out on the playoffs despite being very talented teams. And in my prediction here, at the 9 seed is the first of those teams, the Portland Trailblazers, who last year were the 3 seed in the West winning 49 games. Now, I'm going to just say their over-under is at 42. I think that they win 43 games for the season, just missing out on the playoffs uh, by one win behind San Antonio. I think a lot of people will say, 
They won 49 games last year. They were the three seed in the West. How are they going to lose six more games? And how are they going to not make the playoffs at all? I think that Neil Olshay did not really have a great offseason uh, running this team this offseason. They took or they let Ed Davis go. Ed Davis signed with Brooklyn one year, four and a half mil. Ed Davis, to me, I think is you know the prototype for what a backup center should be in the NBA. They are putting a lot of faith in Zach Collins, uh, their prize pick um, from last year's draft. Uh, they traded two picks to um, they, they traded those two picks to Sacramento, which became Justin Jackson and Harry Giles, and they picked Zach Collins. They're going to be putting Zach Collins into those minutes that Ed Davis played. Collins going to be getting a huge amount of minutes and opportunity. In the draft, I liked the pick of Anthony Simons. A lot of people did not like it. I think Simons, even though he's going to take time, and even though he's a very young player who is not going to be a factor immediately, I think provides or possesses upside, especially offensively. He's super athletic and will eventually become a serviceable bench role player. However, it's going to take a year or two for him to be at that point, and I think he's going to be playing some time in the G League this year. So that first round pick even though I like the pick, was not someone who could come in and help the team this year, which I think they may have needed more than someone in Simons, who I liked as a prospect. Um, the Caleb Swanigan pick from last year, not great. They let Pat Connaughton go and, re- or, and sign Nick Stauskas. I'd rather have Pat Connaughton than Nick Stauskas. I think with this team, Mo Harkless... You know, said that he came back too early from knee surgery, said his knee is still giving him issues. That's not what you want to hear for a guy who's going to be a key figure in their rotation this year. Seth Curry, I actually like the signing of Seth Curry, but he's coming off of an injury. You know, it may take some time for him to work the rust off and acclimate. And, you know, Lillard and McCollum already being the scoring guards who are smaller and not the best defensively, Curry is that same player, so even though I like or the same mold of player, so even though I liked the signing, it may continue those issues that plague the Lillard and McCollum duo. For as good as they are offensively, defensively, they get um, they're not able to stop guys on the opposing teams. Um, I just look at this team, and if I compare them to Denver. And I compare them to New Orleans, who destroyed them in the first round last year. And even San Antonio, despite not having Deontay Murray for probably the whole season. I can't say that Portland is a better team than those teams. I see um, too many question marks. You know, is Yusuf Nurkic... Let's look at Yusuf Nurkic here, continuing the players looking at on this team. Nurkic is a guy who could provide you a dominant game one game, and then be really inefficient, non-productive, and a non-factor the next. The inconsistency factor is there with Nurkic. I think that, you know, and now Myers Leonard, you know, with um, Davis out and Collins moving to the Davis role, maybe Myers Leonard is going to have to play a bit of a role this year. And how confident can you be in that? I look at this Portland team, and from everything I'm saying, there's a lot of question marks. And I can't take this team that has a lot of question marks, despite having the um, one of the 11 best players in the league in Damian Lillard on their team and one of the best scoring guards in the league in CJ McCollum on this team. 
Despite that, with all the question marks that are there, I just can't feel confident in saying that this team is going to win more games than San Antonio, than Denver, um, or than New Orleans. As a result, as I mentioned, I think they're going to lose six more games than they did last year. I think they're only going to win 43 games compared to 49 last year. And I think they're just going to miss out on the playoffs. And I think what's going to happen at the end of the season is I think people are going to be pretty disappointed with Neil Olshay. I think there's already a bit of a dis, uh, growing discontent with him. I think with the prediction of them being the nine seed, I think people are going to be calling for his head after the season. Um, I don't think that they're ever, I don't think that the idea that they're going to trade one of McCollum or Lillard um, is a realistic possibility up until now, but after the season, if they're the nine seed, if they only win 43 games, maybe that becomes more realistic of a possibility. I'd err against it because both of those guys, especially, obviously Lillard, I don't expect to be traded at all, but McCollum, who a lot of people bring up as a potential trade uh, candidate for a lot of other teams, um, Lillard and McCollum are two homegrown guys who they have built their entire team around that duo of guys. I don't think they're inclined to trade either guy, but if they have this 43-win season and people are calling for Olshay and are growingly mad with how he has run this team, maybe that becomes more realistic. But I think the Clippers just miss out on the playoffs and they win 43 games. Now let's move to the team, the team of the preseason, uh, as far as the headlines and media go, and that is the Minnesota Timberwolves. So, all right. With this whole Jimmy Butler situation, my take on it is this. My take has been that um, Tibbs should have traded him by now. The fact that the situation has gotten to this point is fully um, on the part of Tom Thibodeau. And the fact that Glenn Taylor, the owner, had to attempt to step in to get Thibodeau and his GM under him, Scott Layden, to entertain and carry out potential trade negotiations, as basketball operations executives do, the fact that Taylor, these are the guys that Taylor pays to do these things, and Taylor had to step in to get them to even consider it, and the fact that they turned down Josh Richardson at first, and probably Deion Waiters. And I know that Deion Waiters' contract is a negative, and you don't want to have that albatross for three years. As I mentioned in the Eastern Conference preview, I got into this a little bit, but Josh Richardson... A young player uh, who's a great two-way player, good offensively, plus defensively, only makes uh, just over 10 mil a year for the next four years, and a first-round pick, which is a cheap young player who can be a useful player to you from now in the future. You take that despite having to take on Deion Waiters' deal. Because Butler's gone after this year, and all you're going to have with Butler continuing to stay on this team is continuous instances of chaos like we saw in practice the other day, to the point where practice got canceled for the second day. And if Butler is still around, having said the things he has said directly to Carl Anthony Towns, who you have just maxed out and made the default face and franchise cornerstone of this organization, you're going to let Jimmy Butler continuously be around Towns after talking crap on him to such an extent? Andrew Wiggins is a lost cause. The guy's on a huge deal. He's not a productive NBA player. He gets worse every single year. So whatever. I have no issue with him saying stuff to Wiggins because it's all true. But you have Carl Anthony Towns being called out when Carl Anthony Towns is this team's guy. 
You can't have Butler around towns like this for the whole year. Um, now, assuming that Butler stays for a significant majority of the season, which with how uh, Tibbs has not been willing to trade Butler, and now that we're uh, here on Saturday with the season starting on Tuesday, Butler's going to be on this team going into the year. Even if he does with the turmoil that's going to result from this team, and eventually he's going to be traded, I have them as the 10th seed in the West. Now, if Butler gets traded between now and Tuesday, that takes him down uh, maybe a spot, probably not. But they're at 41.5 for their win total. Last year, they won 47 games. Factoring in Butler being traded in inner turmoil, uh, I'm going to say that they win 42. Uh, I'll say they win. I'll say they win 42 games for the season. They got to trade Butler at this point. They just have to, for all the reasons I previously stated. Um, on positive note, Kade Bates Diop at the 47th pick in the draft in the second round, I thought was an enormous steal. This is a guy who was a lot of people had discussed as being a good pick towards the end of the first round for a lot of the teams that were there. So to get him that late, I thought was a great pick and a great value. Um, looking at the rest of this team, Josh Okogie, who they picked in the first round, I was huge on Okogie in the pre-draft process. A guy who can be a two-way player, impactful on the wing, especially with Butler potentially being on the out. Okogie will find himself in a huge role immediately upon Butler being traded. Uh, I thought that was a great pick by them. I thought he was a guy who would have fit perfectly for a plethora of teams there in the 20s. Um, I think he'll be a really productive two-way wing for them. But overall, you know, Jeff Teague, when Butler doesn't play, is a high-usage productive player. Uh, they have Anthony Tolliver as a stretch-four type who can shoot from the outside. Justin Patton's broken his foot two times, so really, what can you expect from him? Um, the whole situation surrounding this team is bleak. It's going to be an utter fiasco for the season until Butler gets traded, which Tom Thibodeau seems to hold be holding firm on not doing. We'll continue to see how that goes. There's really not much to talk about with this team outside of the Butler fiasco because that really dictates how this team goes for this season. And that is the biggest story in all of basketball right now. But I have them as the 10 seed in the West, and I have them winning 42 games. Now let's move on to a team who I think I might have higher than other people do at the 11 seed here, and that's the Memphis Grizzlies. Um... And I thought they had a really, really solid offseason. Now, they made the awful, awful move of not trading Tyreek Evans last season. Could have gotten them a second-round pick, a high second-round pick, who they could have used on a useful player to help them this year. But you look at this Grizzlies team, last year they were absolutely awful. They won 22 games. Now, that's with Mike Conley basically missing the entire season. Um... And they made a lot of moves this offseason that I think will help them greatly. First off, they're going to have Conley back for the season. Conley is one of the league's most underrated players, is a highly productive point guard, who if he's healthy for a full season, that team last year wins at least five more games. Um, and then they picked Jaron Jackson Jr., who is the perfect big for the modern NBA. Um... He can shoot it from the outside. He has a post game. He's a great rebounder. He's a good defender. Can stretch the floor. He's the perfect guy who can be paired with Marc Gasol in the front court. I think the two of them, with Gasol's post scoring ability and his high level passing ability, 
and Jackson's ability to score in the interior and stretch the floor and to provide solid defense next to a guy in Gasol who's not the best defender, who's aging, I think that they work together and pair very well. I thought Javon Carter picked high in the second round was a good pick, a guy who can step in right away and be a useful backup point guard to Mike Conley. Um, I liked them signing slow-mo Kyle Anderson. Um, You know, at nine mil a year, um, maybe it's a bit higher than you want to pay Kyle Anderson, but when he was on the court for the San Antonio Spurs, they were a better team when Anderson was on the court. He doesn't necessarily provide you anything super exceptional in one category, but he's solid across the board and I think will be a productive player that helps this Grizzlies team. Dylan Brooks had a great year last year. I expect that to continue into this season. Uh, Jamichael Green, I think, is a very, very solid player. A guy who can be a solid rebounder at that four spot. And being a guy now, not being a starter next to Gasol, but being a solid bench player who is one of their top guys off their bench, that is a great role to have a guy like Jermichael Green in. Um, They traded uh, Deontay Davis and a second for Garrett Temple, a veteran who can provide you help as a 3 and D guy. Um, And then towards the bottom of the bench, you have Omri Caspi, um, Ivan Rabb, who I think has promise, um, Shelvin Mack, um, Wayne Selden, who got a lot of opportunity last year, um, can still be a productive player offensively. Um, their over-under for the season win total-wise is 33.5. I'm going to take the over on this one. I'm going to say that they win um, 35 games. I think Conley being back for a full season and the drafting of Jaron Jackson, who fits perfectly with Gasol, is a great big for the modern NBA, are going to have a big impact on this team. Um, I think the Anderson signing is going to be helpful. Temple will be a good, a good, useful bench player. Jamichael Green is a bench guy. is a great role to have him in. This team is set to take a step up from last year. They can't go anywhere from up, to be honest. Conley alone just coming back would have a monstrous impact on this team. Add in... Jaron Jackson, add in Kyle Anderson, add in uh, a deep bench with Temple, Jamichael Green. You still have Dylan Brooks, who played great last year. We're going to see 35 wins and the 11th seed out of this Memphis Grizzlies team this season. Now let's go to the team who I predict to be the 12th seed in the East and a team who I find to be really, really fascinating, and that's the Los Angeles Clippers. So... The Clippers, they um, have that lottery protected first, set to go to the Boston Celtics. Um, Look, this team is playing for Kawhi Leonard. They're playing to make an impact and free agency this coming summer. That is their priority overall. Now, they could have very easily decided, you know, we're going to just not sign any vets. We're going to let all of our vets go. And having our pick protected in the lottery... We're going to build a team that is basically going to tank the season. We're going to get the highest draft pick we possibly can. We're going to have as little money on the books as possible next year. Moving forward, we'd have ourselves um, a good young player for our draft pick and a ton of space and flexibility to do whatever we want. Now, Steve Ballmer, the owner, has said that he is not someone who will greenlight basically a tank. So what they did was smart. Avery Bradley, they re-signed on a two-year deal Um but that second year, next year, non-guarantee or partial guarantee. Um, that's a very, very tradable player 
if it comes to the trade deadline and the Clippers say, you know, let's just get rid of the guys who we're going to have to get rid of anyway to create the two max slots this coming offseason, and let's get something for them. Plenty and plenty of teams would trade for Avery Bradley. Um, Montrezl Harrell. I'm a huge fan of Montrezl Harrell. They signed him for two years at $6 million a year. Um, I think he's a very productive, probably suited as a high bench player, big in this league, but I'm happy that they kept him. Patrick Beverly. Patrick Beverly is an easily tradable player who can more likely than not fetch you a late first-round pick from a contending playoff team at the trade deadline. Uh, Phoenix has already talked about how super interested they are in him. I think lots of teams would be interested in getting him. Uh, Luke, and like, they made all these veteran signings, you know, like Luke and Mute, like Mike Scott, that you would look at and you'd say, why is a team like the Clippers signing these useful bench players? Again, you know, they're not going to be a competitive playoff team, but they don't want to be a completely terrible tanking team. It keeps the sort of, um appearance of being competitive and a solid team to maybe appeal to outside free agents just because you continue to have that depth it keeps you being somewhat successful i guess that's the rationale there i didn't understand it because neither guy is really going to be tradable for anything um come trade deadline season milos teodosic one of the most creative passers in the league i think what we're getting at here is looking at their draft Shea Gilgis-Alexander, they traded up one spot, gave up two seconds to Charlotte to get him. He is the future point guard of this team, and I am a huge fan of Gilgis-Alexander. Great size at six foot six, a good passer, a good defender, a guy who's going to grow into his outside shot. Um, he has a good mid-range pull-up game, can get to the rim, great distributor. His size alone makes him a good defender, but he also has good defensive skills and instincts. Now, also at that point guard spot, you have the aforementioned Patrick Beverly. You have Milos Teodosic. You have Jawan Evans, who you got in the second round. Um, and you have Tyrone Wallace, who had a very, very productive season for you when you played when he played for them last season. Then you look at the shooting guard spot. We have the sixth man of the year, Lou Williams, who will be in running in the running for that award again this season. We have the aforementioned Avery Bradley one of the league's best perimeter defenders. And then we have Jerome Robinson, who they picked 13th overall in the draft, was a huge favorite of Jerry West's. Robinson is a complete one-way player. He's only going to give you production on the offensive side of the ball. High production at that, but he's a one-dimensional player. Me personally, I think that having already had one other pick in the lottery, having a glut of guards, I would have picked Michael Porter instead of Jerome Robinson, just to get a guy who has big upside and can be something for you at a high level moving forward, I would have taken that plunge. If it doesn't work out, fine. You still got Gilgis Alexander. And Robinson, again, super super useful player, but if you have a glut of guards and this guy's only a one-dimensional player, I, I just feel like there's better use for that pick and getting Porter instead of Robinson. Um, but overall, and then you still have that shooting guard spot in Darius Thornwell, who they got in the second round. Um in the last draft or the draft before that. Not sure which of the two it was. But overall, Tobias Harris, the stud of this team, I expect them to want to keep him, um, even with all the space that they will have into the offseason. It just depends on how much um, he is asking for. He's an unrestricted free agent. I think a team like Brooklyn 
would be very, or a team like Indiana would love to get their hands on Tobias Harris. Um, but overall, this Clippers team is going to keep their pick. They'll be, I think, the 12th seed in the West. I think their pick will be around, um, I'll probably say that that pick will be around, you know, 11 or 12, uh, which will give you a very productive player in this draft. They'll have a ton of flexibility with their contracts as far as um, waiving guys on non-guaranteed or partial guaranteed deals to create space uh, or trading guys at the deadline who are useful just to get something back for those guys and clearing that space because the entire direction of this franchise is being driven by being a destination to get Kawhi Leonard. That's why the idea of them trading for Jimmy Butler was never going to happen because, you know, who knows if Jimmy Butler makes them more or less likely to get Kawhi, but they're not going to take the risk on it being a negative towards their ability to getting Kawhi Leonard. And as such, they're going to keep their assets and they're going to wait until free agency because Kawhi matters above all. I personally believe that this team will sign Kawhi Leonard this coming offseason. Um, I don't know if they'll get a second guy. I don't know if they'll just end up re-signing Tobias Harris. But I think Kawhi Leonard will be a Los Angeles Clipper next season. The Clippers last year, uh, they won uh, 42 games. Their over-under for the season is at 37 and a half. I'm going to take the under on this team. I think they win 34 games because I think they get to the point where they sell off some guys to get something back for them before letting them go or not re-signing them. And um, I think that they'll get to a point where they try to get the highest pick possible once it's certain that, all right, the season's lost. The We appear competitive for the majority of the year. Now let's get the best young player possible uh, to pair that player with Kawhi, whoever we sign, and what we end up doing with our space moving forward. But I expect Shea Gilgis-Alexander to have a solid year. Interested to see how they divvy up the minutes with the glut of guards at the one and the two to give Jerome Robinson enough opportunity to make him worthy of being picked at that 13 spot instead of Michael Porter Jr. Um, and yeah, so the Clippers are a very fun, entertaining team to watch. They play hard. They have a real fun mix of guys who play good defense. They play scrappy. They can shoot. Um, when this team last year, beginning of the year, before they traded Blake Griffin, the first five to ten games last year, they were the most fun team to watch in the entire league. They were on fire. Um... They have a lot of really solid guys who you look at and you'd say, I want them on my team. These are good role players. These are good guys to have around. So you might be surprised in saying, how is this team going to win 34 games and win less games than the Memphis Grizzlies? Again, I think it gets to a point where a guy like Patrick Beverly will get traded. I think Avery Bradley will get traded. Um, and I think that they're going to go to get that 11th pick instead of that 12th pick or that 12th pick instead of the 13th pick when it comes time to do so towards the end of the season. But again, for the Clippers, Kawhi Leonard is driving what they do for this season and the future, and I think they'll end up getting him in free agency after this season. Now moving on to the team that I think will take the 13 seed in the West, and I'm going to say it's going to be the Phoenix Suns. Last year coming in with the first overall pick, the worst team in the league, at 21 wins. Their over-under for this season is at 29. Uh, I'll take the under on that. I think that they will win, uh, let's go with, I, you know, I'm going to take the even on that, actually. I'm going to say that they win 29 games. I'll give them eight more wins over last year. Um, first off, I think 
that this whole Ryan McDonough thing is terrible and is further indication of just how bad of an owner Ryan or Robert Sarver is. He is an awful, awful owner. To have a GM, regardless of if they were the right moves or not, this was an organizational defining offseason. This offseason will set the path and the future outlook for the Phoenix Suns for the next decade. This was the key offseason, the most important offseason for the Phoenix Suns in recent memory. They let Ryan McDonough make the number one overall pick. They let Ryan McDonough hire a head coach. They let Ryan McDonough trade a 2021 first round pick they hit, that they had as an asset. They let Ryan McDonough give a max extension to Devin Booker. That would have happened regardless of who the GM was, but nonetheless, it's an important decision. And finally, they allowed Ryan McDonough in an offseason where they had a ton of cap space to throw 14 mil of it at, or throw team, wow, 14 mil of it at Trevor Ariza. So all of these incredibly important things, they let Ryan McDonough carry out as GM this offseason. And then they fire him days before the season starts? I don't get it. But then again, I shouldn't be understanding anything that this terrible owner, Robert Sarver, does. Now, let's look at the team itself. I think they will be a better team than last year. Now, I wasn't crazy about DeAndre Ayton in comparison to Donkic last year, but I understood picking a big when you had a ball-dominant wing in Devin Booker. Ayton has showed out in preseason, uh, did not have a good summer league, but looked great in preseason, putting up big numbers. Uh, You'd want to see him improve on the defensive side to fit that um, model of big that he's supposed to be, but he's shown every indication offensively and rebounding-wise that he in preseason at least, is that player that he was drafted to be. We'll see if that carries over into the regular season. Um, I look at this team. First off, people have been talking a lot about the point guard spot for them and how they desperately need a point guard and have nothing there. Elia Kobo and DeAnthony Melton is plenty. Now, I understand that to the majority of people, they'll say that's the best you can do. But DeAnthony Melton, I mentioned all of these things in talking about Houston. This guy is going to be a starting caliber point guard in the NBA eventually. Great defender. He's going to grow into his offensive game. Really athletic. Uh, can play both spots. And then Elia Kobo, who they picked with the first pick of the second round, I thought should have been a first round pick. And I think will also be a starting caliber point guard in the NBA. So they have two guys, super young, rookies, picked in the second round so they're super cheap. And you can cultivate and develop them to be your point guards moving forward. Now, I know that's not the sexy option, but I think it's the right option. Because these guys are going to be solid and dependable for years. And even though they might have this idea that they want to be competitive and win this year, now, I think they'll win eight more games, they're not going to be a good competitive team. They're going to be one of the worst five teams in the NBA this season. Uh, six teams, even. One of the worst six teams in the NBA this year. Um I think Sacramento, Atlanta, the Knicks, um, Orlando, and Dallas will be worse, and maybe Chicago. So that puts them at bottom seven. But Melton and Okobo is a really, really solid young tandem at that point guard spot. The thing with this team, though, is they're probably going to trot out lineups that feature Devin Booker playing the one and just three and D wings um, in Bridges and Ariza. And then they'd have Josh Jackson at the four and Aiton at the five. I don't have confidence in Booker at the one. 
and that James Harden playmaker score dual role, that's not him. Um, I think Ariza is going to be bought out uh, later on this season. I actually think what's going to end up happening is he'll be bought out by Phoenix and he'll end up either on Philadelphia or he'll end up back on Houston. I don't see a way in which they keep him for the full season. Um, I think Josh Jackson is primed to take a step up again this year. Give him a consistent outside shot going. He's a plus defender. Um, had his growing pains last year. I think he's going to take a step up this year. Um, Rashawn Holmes, who they got for basically nothing. They got him for cash. I think Rashawn Holmes has the ability to be a serviceable, athletic, above-the-rim, backup big in this league. And I think he will provide that for this team if he gets the opportunity. Uh, Mikhail Bridges. Now, I mentioned this a lot in the Eastern Conference preview I did about how Bridges was perfect for the Sixers as an NBA-ready 3-and-D guy. I think Bridges is a good fit for this team. I think if you have him off the bench as a 3, as a 2, a guy who can depend on to score and play good defense, create offense for himself, he's an NBA-ready guy. That's going to help this team out tremendously. Uh, Dragon Bender. I have been on the Dragon Bender train since he got drafted. I have stand for Dragon Bender. Um, the idea of this big, athletic, mobile, big, who could shoot a bit from the outside, could handle the ball, would be able to play inside, would be a matchup nightmare. I thought he was going to be great. And I it pains me to say this, but he's been a bust so far. And it's really, really unfortunate because this guy had all the promise as a top-notch prospect um, in the pre-draft process. Now, this is the make-or-break year for Bender. If he has another bad year after this season, what's going to happen with Bender is he is going to get that rookie option declined, and he's going to be off of the Suns and maybe even out of the NBA. Who knows? I think there's promise still there. I don't know how much opportunity he will get, but this is the make-or-break season for Dragon Bender in terms of what his NBA future will be. I think that um, the new coach, Igor, um, I think he's going to provide a great uh, boost to this team in comparison to the interim Jay Triano last year. Um, I think he has the ability to instill a good offensive system with the pieces that they have in place. Um, they have a lot of versatility in wings who can shoot from the outside or are going to be better than previously in shooting from the outside in Josh Jackson, who are also very good on the defensive side of the ball. So you're going to see improvement on the defensive side of the ball in the perimeter. They're going to have much more production, at least offensively, from the interior. They got two solid young point guards, in my opinion. They added Bridges. They added Aiton, I think, and they added Ariza, however long they keep him. I think it's easy to see this eight-win increase and you have a new coach who's going to make it all work. So I think the Suns are going to have a better year than last year. They're still going to have a top seven pick, but they're trending in the right direction. It's just a matter of if their terrible owner will continue to make boneheaded decisions as he did with Ryan McDonough a few days ago moving forward. Now let's go to the team who I think will be the 14th seed in the Western Conference upon the conclusion of the regular season, the Dallas Mavericks. Um, now, they are one of the over-unders who I think is the easiest to bet if you're going to bet on over-unders this year. Their over-under is 35.5. 35.5. I think that is by far the most obvious under to take 
of any of the over-unders in the entire league. Now, they got the best player in this draft in Luka Doncic. I think that was a fantastic trade. Doncic is going to be a star in this league, is going to be the NBA Rookie of the Year this year, and I think his ultimate ceiling, I think he can be the second best player on a championship team. Now, what's going to be interesting to me is, one, how they're how they're able to defend other teams. Uh, with Doncic being big, they might, they might want to have him guard threes and fours, but he really is going to be completely incapable of doing so. And then how does Doncic's uh, presence affect how Dennis Smith plays? Because to me, I look at Dennis Smith, and he's not necessarily the most effective guy without the ball in his hands. He is a high-usage player who needs to be effective on ball. You know, his three-point shooting isn't the best, not a great catch-and-shoot guy, um, not a good defender yet, or really will he ever, I don't know if he'll ever become one, but you look at Dennis Smith, um, and they've been doing a lot with him. You know, Zach Lowe talked about it last year in an article about how he was, they were try, Car, uh, Rick Carlisle was trying him out in post-up situations, Um They've been doing that a lot in preseason this year, so that would be an interesting wrinkle to see. But I don't know how effective of a player Dennis Smith can be without the ball in his hands consistently as a high-usage player. He's not going to make an impact really on the defensive side of the ball, so that would be interesting to see You know whether the post-up becomes a big part of his game. If him and Donkic, both of whom are not the best defenders, are able to mesh well, I think offensively they're going to mesh very well. Um, and I think in time they'll be able to figure out how to best um, attack the opposing teams defensively. DeAndre Jordan, you know, based off of the type of player that Smith is, I think Jordan is the perfect player to pair with him as a pick-and-roll lob threat, um, and his presence defensively will make life easier for the rest of the team uh, because that great interior defensive presence um, projects out for the rest of the team. I think Wesley Matthews is a buyout candidate in the last year of his big deal. I think he's going to be bought out by the trade deadline with Dallas owing that top five protected pick to Atlanta. Um, I think they're going to be in the bottom five regardless, but they're going to make the um, effort to uh, to ensure that no matter what, they keep their pick. So Wesley Matthews, I think, will get bought out to further aid that. Um, I thought Jalen Brunson was a solid pick. In the beginning of the second round, he had a pretty poor summer league. Uh, we'll see how he produces into the season. Um, Dirk, still around. He'll be a bench player, as he should be um, at this stage in his career. Um, Harrison Barnes is in the last year of his deal, which, um, well, he has a player option at 25 mil next year. So take that back. He's going to take that player option next year. Um, Dallas will have money to spend in this coming offseason. I thought that, you know, I understand that they signed Jordan for one year because they didn't want to commit to Jordan for the long term. They thought he'd be a good fit for Smith. I think that DeMarcus Cousins, if he has a good year in Golden State, would make a ton of sense as a big term or as a big long term max player for them. We'll see when we get to that point. Uh, Overall, though, I think the key and the thing to watch for with this team, obviously, is how does Donkic fit with Smith? How do they employ Donkic defensively? How effective is Smith without the ball in his hands? These are the things to watch for. Uh, last year, this Mavericks team won 24 games. 35 and a half as they're over-under, to me, is absurd. Um, I think they're going to win 
Uh, 20, they're 24. I'll give them 25 wins for the season. Um, factoring in, actually, I'll give them 26. I'll factor in two more wins with Donkic being there. But again, you're going to have to work out lots of kinks, lots of growing pains, lots of how do you fit all these pieces together. Um, so I'll give them 26 wins, giving them a bottom five finish in the league, ensuring they keep their pick this year um, in a good draft class. Um, I think that R.J. Barrett would be awesome for this team. I think Zion Williamson would be great for this team. Um, Nasir Little, Nas Reed, guys who can be in that tweener spot so that Donkic doesn't have to guard threes or fours based on his size because that's not what he's suited to do. But overall, um, the Mavericks are going to be a bad team this year. It'll be really awesome to watch Donkic because he's going to be great, but they're going to have a lot of growing pains this year, and that's going to be evident in their record and lack of success. And now we move on to the last team of these two season previews for the Eastern Western Conference, the 15th seed in the Western Conference based on my predictions and basically everyone else who watches the game of basketball and the team who I think will be the worst team in the league and will go 20-62 and 62 on the season, the Sacramento Kings. Um, first off, if you watch this preseason, it seems as though Dave Yeager is trying to get himself fired. They're playing lineups with Frank Mason as the point, fine, and then they're playing four bigs Cauley Stein, Giles, Bagley, and Scal. What, what's the rationale behind that? What, what are you doing, man? What, what is that? Um, the problem with this Kings team is they have a lot of interesting young pieces. The roster composition is terrible. You know, Vladi Divac became Mr. Steelier tentatively signed free agent this offseason, uh, signing Nemanja Bjelica for three years, that third year non-guaranteed at 20 mil, because if you can pay Nemanja Bjelica a stretch for almost seven mil a year to play three for you, you gotta do it, right? Um, Yogi Ferrell, they signed for two years um, at just over six mil. That second year is non-guaranteed, um, swooping in before Dallas could sign him. Willie Cauley-Stein's in the last year of his deal. He's a restricted free agent. I kind of feel like he's not going to be on this team next year. He's a useful player who I think could contribute to lots of other teams um, in the league as a defensive-minded starting big. Um, Zach Randolph and Damon Shumpert, the highest paid players in this team, neither of whom will make an impact at all on this team, or at least shouldn't. I think Zach Randolph will be bought out at some point this season. Shumpert's kind of a lost cause, so he'll just be kind of there. Bogdan Bogdanovich. Let's get into positives. Bogdan Bogdanovich, I'm a huge fan of his at the three. However, he is injured to start the season. Buddy Heald, I think, is at least useful as a three-point shooting scoring wing, probably suited to be a bench player but I think he's productive at that two spot. Justin Jackson was not a fan of his last season. Um, let's get into Harry Giles. Harry Giles, look, I think Harry Giles, you know, when I watched him in college in the pre-draft process last year, I thought he was the perfect backup center for the modern NBA. Um, could be an above-the-rim threat, can play defense, can score in the post, and as we saw in Summer League this year, he's added a three-point shot to his repertoire. I think Giles, it's just got to stay healthy. The talent is there. It's always been there. The issue has always been, can he stay healthy? I think he's going to have a big year this year. Um, what's going to get in his way is how many minutes will he get because of this glut of bigs that they have, but I think he's going to have a big year if given the opportunity. Like, Look at this roster composition that I'm mentioning as an issue. Let's look at the center spot. Cauley Stein, Giles, Costa Kufis. Power forward spot. Marvin Bagley III, who they picked before Donkic. 
Scalabissier, um, Zach Randolph, and should be Nemanja Bjelica, but they're going to play him at the three. You get to the three, Bogdan Bogdanovich, who's out to start the year, um, and Justin Jackson. So they're going to have to play Bjelica at the three because their only option, uh, true threes, is Justin Jackson. Um, unless they want to play Shumpert at all and play him down at the three, which they're not going to do. Unless they want to play Heald down and play him at the three, which they're not going to do. You look at the two spot, you have Heald, you have Yogi Ferrell, who's a very undersized two, but he's not going to play one because you have Fox there. Um, and then you have Shumpert, the aforementioned Shumpert, and then at the one you have Fox and Mason. Now, I'm not the biggest fan or proponent of Darren Fox. I think his plus skill is speed, but the Kings have the lowest pace in the league. He's not a, that great of a defender. He can't really shoot from the outside consistently or score besides getting to the basket. So he doesn't really offer you anything that's above average except for speed, which isn't even a factor on this Kings team because they have the lowest pace in the league. Marvin Bagley III, great offensive player, can get his own shot, can get buckets, but what position does he play? You know, What position can I put him at and say I can build a team around him to hide his deficiencies defensively and optimize my team to succeed to the highest level? I can't play him at the 5, he'll get eaten alive, but he can't really play the 4 either because he's not mobile enough to guard guys who are athletic stretch 4 types. And my goodness, no, he's not a 3, but, you know, Vladi Divac thinks he's a 3, so who knows. Um, look, interesting pieces all around on this team. Oh, and I forgot to mention at the 2, the ghost of Ben McLemore is back on the Sacramento Kings. Um, I like Frank Mason as a backup 1. Um, so again, like, look, I like Frank Mason, I like Scalabissier, I like Harry Giles, I like Yogi Ferrell, I like Buddy Heald, I like Cauley Stein, um, and I like Bogdanovich. That's seven guys right there. But this team has so many of these pieces just thrown together, they don't fit at all. Dave Yeager is trying to get himself fired, it appears. They're not going to be able to optimize, um, and allow their young players to succeed to the highest level because of how weirdly uh, comprised their roster is. This team's a mess. This whole organization is a mess. And the sky is blue. So 20 wins for the Sacramento Kings as the 15th seed in the West. Um, they'll be terrible to watch. But hey, if you like watching things that are just destined to devolve into turmoil, this is your team. Again, I feel bad saying these incredibly negative things because there are pieces to like on this team. But how can you have confidence in this organizational brain trust to allow it to succeed to the highest level? Um, the Celtics are really going to enjoy getting the second overall pick from this Kings team this year. All right, so that is it for my Western Conference preview and predictions um, for teams 1 to 15, my predictions on seeding, standings, and whatnot, what to follow. Um, a quick aside I want to get into before the end of this episode the Knicks waved and stretched Joe Kim Noah this afternoon. I think this is a terrible move for the Knicks. They had no reason to stretch Noah and take away 6.43 mil in space in 2020 to 2021 and 2021 to 2022 um, because you don't eat into future space without the guarantee, 100% guarantee, of needing that space in the short term. Do they? Who's to know here on October 12, 13th that the Knicks need extra 12 mil in space that they'll get by stretching Noah at the cost 
of losing 6.43 mil in space for two seasons after that. And even if they needed to stretch Noah to get the space to sign a committed 100% free agent, they had until August 31st, 2019 to stretch him. There is no need to do it now, and the argument that they needed to stretch him now because they were going to do it anyway and they needed a roster spot for the season is crap. You really needed to create a roster spot for Noah Vonley or Emmanuel Moutier, Moutier who should be cut anyway, when you could have just cut Ron Baker? Get out of here. They don't have the need to spend all of their space this offseason. They had no need to take away space for two seasons after next season when eating his deal would have been done. They should have eaten his deal for this year and next unless they got a 100% guarantee from a free agent who, to fit him in, they would have needed to create the space that they would have gained from stretching Noah. I think this was a bad move. I think the timing make no, makes no sense. And I think that they're going to regret it when they have lost 6.43 mil in space that they will not be able to gain back in any way. But that's enough with that. This was my Western Conference preview and predictions for the season. Again, this is after the final whistle. I am your host, Brad Clear. Thank you for listening here on podcast.com or on iTunes. Um, be sure to check back for future episodes. Um, three days away from the start of the NBA season. I'm super excited. I know you are as well. So shout out to you, the listener, for listening to this show. Follow me on Twitter at Brad Clear underscore clear spelled K-L-I-E-R. Um, should be a really fun NBA season. These were, in this in this episode and in my Eastern Conference episode, my predictions for all 30 teams in the league. Until next time, I am Brad Clear. And as always, goodbye and good night. <laughs>